to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Cinzia Bianco, a visiting fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations. Her most recent publication is A Gulf Apart, How Europe Can Gain Influence with the Gulf Cooperation Council. And it's available on the European Council for Foreign Relations website at ecfr.eu forward slash publications. Our conversation today focuses on the Great Retreat, America's diplomatic withdrawal from the Middle East. Good morning, Cinzia. Good morning. Thank you again for being part of the Arab Digest podcast. Thank you for inviting me. The Trump administration's handling of the Middle East portfolio has confounded America's Arab allies and friends. I want to look at that first, this transactional nature of his approach uh, to the MENA region. Definitely. Um, the United States' approach towards the Middle Eastern region is uh, absolutely changing very much. Um, and it started changing already under the administration of Barack Obama, uh, where you know Arab allies started to perceive sort of some sort of retrenchment. And then when Donald Trump came to power, basically they, their, their perception was that perhaps uh, the guy was still going to look after the narrow interests of the U.S., but given that he was was much more flexible towards, you know, having some sort of transactional relationship, they could steer the ship towards, you know, aligning more with their uh, interests. And in particular, I mean, this was uh, appeared to be true in the in the first period, in first years of uh, the Trump's presidency, where, uh, for instance, you know, powerful figures, uh, policymakers from the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia, tried to develop a personal relationship with uh, key figures within the Trump administration, like Jared Kushner, for instance, and they managed to actually get through to the president, establish a a relationship whereby they would double down on investments in the U.S., double down on purchase of weapons and other and other systems. And in return, they would get a more uh, positive and flexible attitude from the president towards their uh, interests. It, it is also true that those interests, for instance, in containing Iran, really uh, coincided to a large extent with uh, some sort of uh, view that was already established within the Trump administration. Um, so... I I shall say that uh, these transactional relationships that was definitely there in the beginning has evolved to a greater extent. And now uh, uh, there is even less confidence in the U.S. and even more confusion towards what uh, is evidently an erratic uh, behavior. Yes, erratic and and uncertain. And that causes this, this unease, doesn't it? Absolutely. This uncertainty um, that really crystallizes the idea of the U.S. retrenching from the region, wanting to basically decline responsibilities, especially in the sense of, you know, geopolitics and really diplomacy. Yeah, it's diplomacy that America seems to have retreated most profoundly from in the MENA region. But we shouldn't forget that America still maintains a huge military presence. So let's talk about the importance of that. This is a very important point because uh, that's actually the main point when one talks about U.S. retrenchment that is uh, is thrown back. But the the fact is that this military deployment, which is actually, as you mentioned, uh, uh, increased during the Trump presidency, and again there is a lot of speculation that this was uh, in response to requests, for instance, from Saudi Arabia 
to provide some sort of deterrence uh, against potential attacks from, for instance, uh, Iran. Um, this deployment is not necessarily tied into and drawn into a, a wider strategy where the U.S. is really at the forefront and leading this design and this strategy that has a wider and more sustainable and profound geopolitical impact. So this is actually really fits into the dynamic of the transactional relationship. And for instance, if we take one example, which is the attacks against the Aramco infrastructures in September 2019, which are allegedly were executed by the Iranian, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, of Iran. Um, then uh, we see that the United States really did not have a response to those attacks in terms of a hardcore geopolitical response. Um, and even at the, simply at the, the political level, uh, the discourse remained pretty vague about what the U.S. was going to do about it. And actually, the Trump administration line was this Saudi Arabia, which was the victim, should lead the response and we will support them, which is exactly uh, the opposite uh, of what traditionally would happen in the same situation a few decades before. And then we see that uh, as, a, as in response to pressures from Saudi Arabia also and the figures of Saudi that travel to Washington to try and talk about the disappointment of this lack of reaction, Trump decides to double down on uh, the deployment of troops and uh, weapons uh, and weapon systems uh, to the kingdom. But again, that wasn't really part of uh, a wider uh, strategy and that was clearly perceived in Riyadh and that also basically um, was perceived later when, for instance, the US assassinated IRGC General Qasem Soleimani and apparently Saudi Arabia, which is exactly in the line of retaliation, wasn't even aware of the operation. So it's, it really is a different kind of US engagement. Yes, and I think you, without that diplomatic engagement, then the military engagement is somewhat uh, uh, haltered, isn't it? It's really shallow. I mean, there, there isn't a grander strategy, um, geopolitical strategy. What's the point then? It's, is it just bare uh, deterrence? I mean, it can work, uh, but very short term. And then we saw already that most of the that some of these troops and most of these equipment has been redeployed away from the kingdom. So it's also temporary uh, as, a, as a solution. Now, the diplomatic withdrawal by America has created opportunities both within Amina and from outside players. Can we first of all consider who in the region is benefiting from this diplomatic retreat? Definitely, um, if we look at it in a sort of a longer time frame, so from 2011 onwards, we definitely can see uh, regional powers advancing and basically trying to uh, uh, step into spheres of influence where they perceive that there was a vacuum of power left by the U.S. And this is... Uh, for sure, I mean, you can see uh, um, the examples uh, with Iran, with Turkey, but also with some of the Gulf states, including the United Arab Emirates, Qatar for a few years before, uh, uh, definitely before 2013, and to a lesser extent also attempted by Saudi Arabia. Going further afield, who are the players that you see taking advantage of Trump's weak grasp of the continuing strategic importance of the region? Uh, should we start with Vladimir Putin? 
Yes, if we widen the scope, uh, definitely Russia has been advancing as a reg- as a player in the Middle East, and that, of course, uh, notoriously began with their role in the Syrian war, but has now extended to uh, play, uh, basically gaining a seat at the table in so many different crises in the region, um, Libya, uh, but also to a lesser extent uh, Yemen, and also the intra-Gulf in the, in the sense of the um, GCC or Saudi Arabia. UAE versus Iran conflict. And in all these different crises, um, now Vladimir Putin is, is a player in his own right and is, is sitting at the table and he is uh, a voice to be heard. Uh, so that, is, that was uh, uh, something that was uh, sort of unthinkable before a few decades ago. Um, and Russia is, has, has really tried to take advantage of the situation in a very opportunistic sense to try and extend uh, their influence or to extend the perception of their influence, which is uh, a very, very strong card at the diplomatic table. And for instance, we saw yesterday an agreement between Turkey and and Russia or a uh, inception of an agreement about Libya. And we are now looking at possibly the replica of the Astana process that put uh, Turkey and and Russia really as the major kingmakers on the Syrian conflict. We, we may see the replica of this model in the Libyan context. And you can see there that the Russians can use their advantages in the, for instance, Syrian scenario to claim uh, some influence in the Libyan scenario, given that they are the same two players talking, or vice versa. So um, this is a model that uh, may extend in the in the upcoming future. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make about perceptions of power, because Russia has not had to invest a huge amount of hardware, really, in in the region to achieve some pretty major results. Yes, precisely. And you know, on the on the ground, I mean, uh, Russian influence and Russian power is often exaggerated in the Middle East. But uh, that's not really what matters. What matters is at the end of the day, when you know push comes to shove, and there are the diplomatic processes to untangle the crisis, um, really it is important what is the perception of power and influence. And perception of Russia is really, really increased in terms of a powerful player in the in the past few years. And that really means that uh, local players and policymakers are much happier to deal with Russia and to listen to Russia. And uh, they now look at Russia as, as a power that really cannot be excluded from talks about uh, regional geopolitics. Mm, interesting. In a sense, you're suggesting that uh, the regional players trust Russia more than they trust America. They definitely um, uh, feel less uncertainty vis-a-vis Russia. They uh, know what they can expect from Moscow. So that that is, of course, you know, in, in the context of diplomatic relations, it's really important. It doesn't mean that there aren't still prejudices and there are, you know, there aren't uh, um, reasonings in the region behind the scenes about Russian hidden agenda and how opportunistic Russia can be uh, in all of these crises. So there are still a number of question marks and it's hardly considered a full-on ally by regional players, but it's definitely considered a major player that has to be hurt. Okay, let me ask you about 
the Chinese because the Chinese are in the ascendancy clearly. How are they playing the game in the MENA region and, and what opportunities do they see? So uh, that's also a very interesting case. And uh, I, I would argue we have to uh, sort of discuss China before and after COVID-19. Of course, I mean, China is still uh, battling the pandemic uh, within uh, its own borders. And uh, they, they, the uh, effect in terms of vulnerabilities and reduced uh, economic uh, resources um, and also, you know, political and geopolitical bandwidth has not have not yet materialized. So we are still in a transition period. Before COVID-19, China was uh, really threading quite uh, uh, ambitiously in the region, trying to place itself as a, absolutely a major economic player and potentially, so in the future, in a, in a future perspective, also the most desirable economic partner for a number of countries around the region. I mean, China was uh, uh, and, and, and still is a top player in terms of providing finances, for instance, uh, to financing to a number of countries. I mean, we have seen in Oman, for instance, they have played a, a pretty substantial role in the past uh, in trying to support the government while they try to contend with their dire economic and financial situation, but also and first and foremost, a major player in ports and infrastructure structures as part of uh, um, their Belt and Road Initiative, so in the infrastructural and logistics sector. But their only limit was to try and stay out of geopolitical rivalries, of conflicts, uh, and really the hardcore geopolitics. And they tried to stay out of it, first of all, because they don't really want to waste many resources following those crises, and first and foremost, because they don't think that there is any uh, incentive for them to take sides in any of these conflicts. And on the contrary, they want they want to promote a model of you know economic diplomacy that does not get the hands dirty with geopolitics and and conflictual situations. But whether that was sustainable or not is questionable. Definitely, it was uh, on the radar, for instance, of the United States, uh, and the rivalry between the US and China was already growing. But after COVID-19, the perception and the idea is that this rivalry will deepen, and it will be much more difficult for the Chinese to try and stay out of geopolitical questions, to try and not take a side. And on the contrary, what could happen is that the US could be, and already to an extent is uh, happening, push U.S. allies in the region to uh, uh, take the distance from China and really try to contain their relations to a certain uh, domain that does not become too entangled. And we have seen uh, some movement in that direction with U.S. pressures on Israel, for instance, to uh, try and reconsider some of their deals with Chinese companies. Uh, We may very well see these sort of pressures vis-a-vis the U.S. allies in the Gulf and all the GCC monarchies have uh, some uh, uh, substantial relations with China, with uh, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia leading the way in this uh, in this sense. Uh, and China has become very important for both of them. So uh, that can uh, develop in very interesting directions. 
All right. Now we've talked about uh, Chinese, the Russians. Uh, what about Europe? I mean, does Europe have much of a role to play? So uh, Europe is a, is a complex player because of still how it's perceived in the region as, uh, you know, many things at once. There is a competition between individual European countries and the European Union as a whole uh, in terms of being uh, major regional players in the eyes of uh, uh, regional policy makers especially. And, and then there is, uh, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the EU per se is a complex creature. It's not really a, a security actor, uh, which of course, you know, is a major disadvantage when we are looking at a, a so much conflict-ridden uh, context. It's sort of a slow player that adapts really slow to changing realities because of the complexity of getting 27 different governments to agree on a specific line. So there are a number of question marks uh, as from regional uh, from a regional perspective vis-a-vis -vis Europe. But at the same time, many regional policymakers now have accepted the fact that the U.S. is retrenching from uh, the region and that you know Russia cannot really be trusted because it's a, mostly an opportunistic player and that China is a dangerous ally because of uh, um, U.S. pressures. So. There is still a space for Europe to step forward and become more proactive player uh, and, uh, and also get a, a bigger role. And this space is recognized uh, both in Europe and in the region. And uh, the EU is uh, intense to uh, have a geopolitical European Commission and the, the European uh, Commission has been given a mandate by member states, for instance, uh, a pretty strong mandate has been given to the High Representative for Foreign Affairs, Joseph Borrell, to try and work on regional de-escalation in the Gulf. So there is still the potential for Europe to become uh, a more important player in the region and especially in the niche of diplomacy where really there there aren't many takers there isn't there are many players that are interested in working towards how not to fuel a conflict but de-escalate and find durable uh, solutions the united kingdom clearly a player in the region uh, remain a player Yes, for sure the, the United Kingdom will remain a player, but there is a discourse in the region that recognizes the weaknesses of the UK and the vulnerability of this moment um, as the UK is going through Brexit, which really absorbs most of the political attention in London. And now the pandemic um, and COVID-19 and really trying to get out of, the, of this uh, cycle is not going to be particularly easy. But the UK has uh, um, structural assets, I would argue, which are, for instance, the historical relations with uh, uh, many of these uh, countries' key players and very uh, meaningful uh, uh, set of tools that, it, that range from you know, military to diplomacy. And these are not things that uh, evaporate, but it can be argued that right now these uh, tools alone won't really be sufficient to make a difference and you know we are moving into a space and i think this is overall you know the reflection that we can make that we with the us retrenchment we are moving into a space of competitive multipolarism 
And, you know, the poles are huge because we have Russia, we have China, we have Europe as, as a block, and we have the US. And the UK on its own can't really compete uh, in this fight. So we still, uh, you know, um, the best best scenario ahead, uh, in my opinion, would be for the UK and the EU to find a format where they can still cooperate on foreign policy and security, where they all recognize that it would be beneficial to pull the resources and assets together in order to be bigger players in this uh, in this arena. It's a bit like the Middle East turning into, in the past few years, into the far west where the Sharif, uh, the US, is, uh, is busy or, or is taking a nap and you have a competition that is going on uh, in, the, in the region for replacing or, or just, you know, contending the spheres of influence that are left uh, open. I'm just rolling that around in my head, the, the Sharif taking a nap. Yeah, that's very interesting way to look at it. But, but look... The damage that's being done to America's reputation in the MENA region, can it be undone by a Biden presidency or or the wounds just too deep to heal, really? In my own opinion, that remains unlikely. It's true that we are in a an era or a period of time where, you know, uh, unprecedented, unlikely things become uh, uh, reality pretty quickly. But even a, a different president would have to try and overcome in only four or eight years uh, a damage that has been done over decades. Because uh, really, if we, if we go back and we start to look at uh, how, where things really started to go south, it's, it's not later than the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And uh, it, this means that we're almost uh, two decades, we have almost two decades of disappointment and wrong policy choices uh, that have had a destabilizing effect on the region to really contend with. The sheriff's asleep, the players, various players have rolled into town. I, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, Jinzia, and I'm going to ask you, which one of these players do you think will come out best? I think that, you know, uh, the smaller and more flexible players have actually very good chances of coming out of these quagmires uh, in a better position. So, for instance, uh, a player like Qatar that has been able to adapt its own uh, uh, policies to the, re- to the realities on the ground uh, in the region and the global ones is, you know, shown, has shown remarkable resilience, really. And likewise, uh, uh, although, you know, much more em- embedded into the, the conflicts, uh, uh, potentially the UAE is, uh, has shown to become a, to be a flexible player. And if they could uh, sense um, that, you know, sticking with this line, uh, extremely confrontational line, is uh, detrimental in the long run um, and become much much more pragmatic and much more uh, flexible and and diplomacy oriented, they could come out uh, in a strong position. And Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman? So I think that uh, larger players in these very flexible and controversial uh, times are not uh, the best placed. And uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, 
a number of problems uh, domestically that they have to uh, face and challenges that they have to overcome before that they can consider what you know uh, winning uh, the geopolitical battle and to a certain extent i mean i would argue that even other players like turkey iran or russia uh, being bigger players and larger players they have been you know hit by uh, the pandemic uh, more strongly for instance they are not as flexible to adapt to a very fluid geopolitical uh, scenario and they have uh, a much more substantial economic and financial challenges than the smaller players have. T- time is not really on their side, on the side of the larger players. And I, I guess that the same could be said for Saudi Arabia. Uh, they are facing uh, uh, important substantial challenges uh, at the economic level, at the financial level, at the level of uh, overcoming the pandemic. And in the midst of all of that, they still have an unfinished political transition and leadership transition. And on top of that, they don't have a good track record in the very uh, recent past with geopolitical adventures, if you look at the war uh, in Yemen, for instance. So they are not, I think, in a very advantageous position. Chinzia, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Chinzi Bianco, a visiting fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations. She was speaking to me from Berlin. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. And if you're a student, an academic, or retired, we are now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on arabdigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. Music